Holy cow, I am so excited you're listening to this podcast. Isn't that great? I would also be very excited if you had your own personal website, right? Wouldn't that be neat? You'd be an online person. You would be very online, capital V, capital O. And uh, that's a little uh, preview of the episode too. Isn't that great? Anyway, you should build a website with Squarespace. They make it easier than any other possible way. They give you an amazing looking website right out of the gate that you can customize any way you want. And I can't recommend it enough. So head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Live show announcement. This is a live show announcement, and I'm going to keep it brief because the, the reasons it's exciting are obvious, I think. We are doing a one night only live episode of the Cracked podcast on Sunday, September 8th in London. Uh, also, I believe in British vernacular, the date would be 8th September Right. That's what what you folks say. Either way, London, London, United Kingdom. We are coming to the London Podcast Festival. I love doing those road shows in Chicago and St. Paul this spring. We decided to find the next great opportunity to do that as soon as we could somewhere else. We also decided uh, to go for a place where we got a lot of requests to my Twitter account and, and elsewhere. And this is the perfect fit for both things. You folks in the UK out there, you are a large and vocal audience in a good way. And I cannot wait for that to be a live in-person audience. Links with all the information for being part of that are in the food notes. And see you soon, the UK. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also glad we all live in the future. What is the future, you say? Well, it's a word I picked up from Kanye West, and here is him saying it. What is it like when you guys get together and do you talk about things as kind of obvious or highfalutin as what the future will feel like or is it kind of more casual than that? That's exactly what we talk about. What does Kanye West and Elon Musk talk about? The future. <laughs> the future. That's right. Kanye talks about the future or as most people have called it for, for most of the English language's process, the future. And please don't think I'm making fun of the way Kanye is speaking there. The evolution of language is exciting. It can happen on an individual person to person basis. And it's something that is not thought about enough. Because one of the ways life is more interesting than people think it is, is that not only has language evolved over time, but in recent times, thanks to the internet, we have developed an entire new chunk of language, uh, both spoken and written, but, but that's kind of the point. The thing about the internet is it has over 4 billion users today across the world. A majority of Americans got on the internet by the year 2000, uh, so there's been some time. There's enough time to build a critical mass of people using that medium to write things and to communicate with each other, and it's created a whole array of amazing things that we're going to talk about today, and I'm so excited to do it. Our topic today is the amazing elements of internet language that you've probably never thought about. One more time, that is the amazing elements of internet language that you've probably never thought about. If you've thought about them a lot, you might be like our amazing guest today. She is Gretchen McCulloch, who is a linguist, is the host of the podcast Lingthusiasm, and has written one of my favorite books in a long, long time. The book is called Because Internet understanding the new rules of language. That's right, the main title of the book is Because Internet. 
And uh, if, if you speak internet, as I do and many people do, you know that because internet is an entire statement, it's an entire piece of meaning. Also, anytime I get to talk to a great author like this, I highly recommend getting their book. There are links to pre-order the book, which is out July 23rd uh, in the food notes. There is also a thread that Gretchen did because she is very online and and wonderful to follow on Twitter and other platforms. Uh, But she has a great thread about what pre-orders mean for an author. It's very, very helpful to allow them to continue to be an author and get you the book right away and so many other positive things. So please check that out and, and please get the book. In the meantime, we're digging into all kinds of amazing things in it, so please sit back or sit in a fashion that lets you be capital V very, capital O online, as we like to be on the internet. And here's this fun episode of the Cracked Podcast with linguist Gretchen McCulloch, author of Because Internet. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I'm sure I said so in the intro, but thank you for this book. It's like it's laying out a lot of things that I've come across and never, never been able to codify or or have a, a specific schema or framework for before. How did you decide on kind of what the scope of it was going to be? Because because there's a lot there. I know you say in it that it's sort of one step toward understanding this and it's not the entire thing. But but how did you pick out these specific uh, areas? It's a massive challenge writing a book, a book about the internet, the internet. (laughs) A book is very static. It's designed to be able to sit on a shelf for the next 50 years, 100 years. You know, it's going to end up in the Library of Congress and stuff. And the internet is the opposite of all of those things. The internet is constantly moving. So how do you write a book about something that continues to be a moving target? This isn't like, oh, what's the oldest language? Because the oldest I mean, that's actually a question that doesn't really have an answer. So, because like, how do you measure it? We don't know. Languages don't leave fossils. Uh, So (laughs) the answer to what's the oldest language is we just have no idea. We're never going to know. You can tell what the oldest writing system is because writing systems do leave physical records. But language is way, 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 way older than any sort of writing system. And so ultimately it's like, like, what was the first song? No one has any idea, right? Because no one was writing this down. (laughs) (laughs) You can tell when anatomically modern humans show up. But like, did they have language at the time or did it take another like couple, like, tens of thousands of years. We just don't know. So if you answer an easier question like, what did English look like a thousand years ago? Uh, we, we do have answers to that question. And those don't really change. Like, we, we know what it looked like because we have records of that. And you can just write a book about that. And then in 50 years, it'll still be a pretty good book to read. Whereas I knew that any book that I was going to write was going to turn into a historical artifact almost immediately. Because <laughs> that's what it looks like when you write a book about the internet. So the way that I wanted to approach a lot of questions about how the internet worked is like, I knew I couldn't write a book about like, what are all the cool words and memes from 2017, 2018 when I was working on the book? Right. Uh, because nobody wants to read in 2019, here's a list of all the cool memes from 2017 and 2018. So how could I make something that approaches this question of how do we use language on the internet in a way that's not just here's this one snapshot of you know what people are doing like right now because that's out of date before it even goes to press and how can i ask bigger questions like what makes the internet unique and interesting as a place to analyze language you know yeah and those types of questions are kind of deeper and more interesting than you know here's a list of cool words One of the ways that I tried to avoid just giving a list of cool stuff from 2018 was 
how can we ask these questions maybe in a more historical way? So I have a chapter about punctuation and how we use expressive punctuation on the internet. And for a lot of these different types of punctuation that we use expressively, I go back and try to find what's the origin of each of them. So why do we start using all caps to indicate shouting? When did that happen? It turns out that's much older than the internet. That goes yeah. back to, you know, the Victorians. <laughs> and so sometimes by going older, it's less obvious that something might become dated. Because right. it's still true that the Victorians were using that even 50 years from now. And then in other cases, when a particular type of punctuation started being used, so using lowercase letters or the using the tilde for sarcasm, the citations for that start showing up around 2012. So right. it's a lot more recent. Among many amazing things in the book, it's amazing how much the way we talk on the internet, which I think a lot of people might assume is disposable or completely novel or or something that doesn't have a lot of weight to it. A lot of that comes from several years ago, but also more of it comes from almost history or even even like you say, the Victorians or further back. It seems like it was a lot of kind of stitching together the entire experience of human language to cover our internet writing. That's great. Yeah, and in many ways, the internet is, is a rubric through which you can look at what's the history of, of writing or what's the history of people trying to express themselves emotionally in writing, which yeah. is a, such an interesting question. Because, you know, as far back as we know, we've been expressing ourselves emotionally in speech. And yet the earliest writing records, you get things like, you know, here's how many bushels of grain or cows or something were like traded from this person to this person. And it's very bureaucratic in many cases, the earliest writing. Sure. And the space for emotions to be written down <laughs> is something that we've been developing for the past several thousand years. Oh, good for us. What a project. It's great. <laughs> there's one kind of kind of very big idea right toward the top of the book. Well, actually, there's a few different parts to it, but it's one that the writing on the internet is somewhat like speech in a way that, that maybe other writing hasn't been. I would find that totally fascinating. Do you want to kind of expand on that? Historically, we've had multiple genres of speech, you know, going as far back as, as we were aware of. Yeah. You have your informal speech, your conversations, your back and forth every day, how you talk to your friends, your family, your dog. And then you have your formal speech, which is giving public speeches, reciting poetry, telling stories. Uh, and in the modern era, things like actors and radio and television and all these genres. Like a newscaster doesn't go home and talk to their dog the same way they're talking on the news. Right. And, <laughs> and, and this is some of the oldest genres we know. So some of the early things that were written down, epic poems like the Iliad and the Odyssey and Beowulf and stuff like that, were originally spoken part of the oral tradition. They were memorized and they were delivered to audiences. And then eventually someone written down when writing started reaching those particular areas. But in a lot of cases, they existed as these very elaborate, spoken, formal genres. So we know that formal genres are really old. Again, we don't know how old because languages don't leave fossils. And so speech has always had this dichotomy between formal and informal. And we often, linguists even often think of speech as this informal thing because most of the speech that we do is informal. What's interesting is that writing has had, has been existing primarily in the formal genre for so long. Yeah. Because especially after the printing press gets created and it becomes easy to kind of mass produce stuff, if you're going to bother mass producing stuff, if you're going to bother to typeset it and like invest that kind of money in it, it's going to be pretty formal. And especially just like we consume a lot more formal speech than we produce, you know, you 
listen to radio or you listen to podcasts or you watch TV or you, you know, go to plays or concerts or these kinds of things where people produce a formal genre, we consume a lot more formal writing than we produce. And, you know, a hundred years ago, people weren't really writing that much at all if you weren't, if it wasn't your job or if it wasn't your hobby. Like maybe a few letters, but the invention of the telephone kind of killed the social letter in <laughs> in large respect. <laughs> so a lot of people, their informal writing was like a note on the kitchen table, like I've fed the dog. <laughs> or, you know, like, here's the book you requested. <laughs> that was it. You know, you, you had a couple notes or like yard sale. People's amount of informal writing that they did was was very limited. And now informal writing is this huge genre that has some things in common with informal speech. You know, it's often got more back and forth to it. It's not edited. It's not pre-rehearsed. But it's also got some things in common with writing, one of which is it's produced the same way we do with other kinds of writing. Just to say something really obvious, there's a lot of early internet research that's like, yeah, you know, internet writing, it's like speech, except for the really obvious factor that it's produced with letters on a page or a screen rather than sounds coming out of your mouth. But there's a huge factor, which is like the, the literal method that, that it's produced by is still really writing-like. Yeah. And a lot of these things that we think of as characteristic of speech, like being rapid and unedited and having back and forths, are really only characteristics of informal speech. Because if you're giving a public speech, you've rehearsed that, hopefully. You don't have people doing a back and forth because those are hecklers and they're not supposed to be there. <laughs> you have this very controlled environment. You talk in a very stylized way. You know, you have a sort of routine. You know, you start off your speeches in, in ritualistic sorts of ways. You don't talk the same way that you talk with your dog. And the formal speaking genre has been almost as neglected as the informal writing genre because we just don't, we don't think of it being there. And what's really interesting about that is if you take, okay, informal genres support interruption and an overlap, and writing supports lots and lots of words, you end up with chat. Yeah, right. And in the internet sense, okay, chat supports like a, you know, chat thread, a chat room, a text message thread, any sort of back and forth thread. You can have interruptions and back and forths. And you can also have this really, really common phenomena where you actually have two conversations going on overlapping each other in parallel in a chat. Sure. Whether that's two people, though that's just two people having two conversations in parallel. Like if I'm like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? And you're like, oh, did you see the movie last night? And then we both respond to each other's message and then we kind of go back and forth and we can interweave them and it's fine because we can skip back up and read what was previously said which we couldn't do in speech because that's the writing part but also we're still having this back and forth and it's you know it's informal and sometimes one of them get dropped eventually and that's the informal part and so chat is this really cool genre that isn't possible in any of the other quadrants because it supports this informality and this real-time writing that we just didn't have I feel like we should all just go around being thrilled that I think one big takeaway from that is that within the last few decades, the the book especially draws on some early, early computer chatting or, or texting or typing from the 70s and 80s. But in the last couple decades, we've found basically a whole new way to communicate where our, our writing is also a lot like speech. That's that's very thrilling. It's like it's like we're around for landing on the moon or something. It's really great. Yeah, it's very exciting to realize yeah. that you're living through history, you know, <laughs> and in a hundred years, people are going to look back and be like, what an interesting era. I wonder what it was like to be a person in that era. And like, you're in that era now. <laughs> <laughs> 
You don't have to be like, oh, it was so cool when the printing press was invented. I wonder what that was like. No, we're in another era like that. You can be excited about that. And also, I love that idea that the quote I got from the book is all writing is technology. Just that that fundamental concept that the the way we're able to communicate in writing, it's always been been driven a lot from the medium we've got. And so this this Internet medium is so exciting to do it in. Yeah. Writing itself is a technology and it's based on it requires additional physical tools beyond the body, which is ultimately what a technology is. You know, if you're speaking or if you're signing, you couldn't do that just with your own body. But as soon as you're writing something, you have to do that with something external. If you look at the shapes of writing systems, uh, historically, they're also affected by the tools that people were using to write with them at the time. Like the shapes of letters and characters and those things. Yeah. So it's if you're going to carve stuff, it's easier to make straight lines. And if you're going to use ink, it's easier to make curvy lines. I'm not kidding. You can try this. Like, Oh, that's great. You know, if, like go get a carrot or a you know potato or something and try, carve some letters into it. And you can't make curves. I'm so glad I brought potatoes to the studio today. That really worked out. And then get uh, in the second portion. I hope you also brought uh, the ink and the <laughs> and the brush. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> huge quill pen. Yeah. Yeah. Huge quill pen. <laughs> if, especially if you try to write with a quill pen or a fountain pen. You can tell why people started writing cursive because it's just awkward oh. to lift, keep lifting the pen. And even if you lift your pen, if you have like a really liquidy, flowy ink, it will just thread from one letter to the next. Like it'll, it's way easier to join your letters than to not join your letters using a quill pen or a fountain pen. And what's oh. really interesting is that the rise of the ballpoint, which uses thicker ink, is also one of the things that's involved in the shift from this really flowy, like, old school calligraphy kind of declaration of independence writing (laughs) to this more kind of like semi-joined up, like half print, half cursive writing that a lot of us do with a ballpoint. That's a ballpoint thing. Because I I know people, especially in my generation, who like learned cursive in grade school and it was a very painstaking process and it took a lot of time. And then now they're furious that kids aren't learning it now and that it's being forgotten. But I guess it must just be a technological thing. It's a relic of the fountain pen, you know, quill <laughs> pen era. That was when it made sense to do cursive. Well, and if you think of children, you know, in like, you know, one room schoolhouses kind of moving from like chalk on a slate where it really makes sense to print stuff to pen and paper, then then it really makes sense to do cursive. So that's why you have this kind of transition from print to, to cursive. But and you can see this in historical scripts as well. So you know how like ruins... Germanic ruins are like really blocky, oh. like Viking letters. They're oh, super, yeah. They're super blocky and lining because they were all carved. Yeah, those characters, it's all it's all carving sort of odd straight lines yeah. into, yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, I don't know if you know what cuneiform looks like. Is that this like Sumerian <laughs> Egyptian sort of thing? Maybe yeah, just it's the Sumerian. Sumerian one, yeah. Okay. So cuneiform was produced by taking, we don't do this anymore, but you can like, if you get some Play-Doh, you can try this at home as well. <laughs> it was produced by taking a cutoff reed, like a, like a reed from the, river marshes and then you make like a like a flat clay tablet and you stamp your reed directly into the tablet like straight up and down and you can stamp it in in different combinations and if you look at cuneiform like you can google (laughs) image search cuneiform that would be easier than getting some play-doh uh (laughs) you can see they're all made up of just repeated versions of this one weird like dart triangle like long triangle shape 
another thing I picked up from the book is that it's not framed this way in the book, but today we have our own very specific labor to do to make our our writing uh, look and seem exactly the way we want it to do. Like you pick out that a key smash is something that everybody's seen. If I had to say it verbally, it would be like because it's usually that ASDF row of the keyboard and then some other stuff. I had to say it. I had to say it verbally in the audiobook. Oh, how'd you <laughs> was, do it? Well, so I don't know if I can say this because, like, maybe this is a spoiler because my th- I had a director on the phone with me, like, giving me, you know, <laughs> advice about stuff. And we get to the key smash portion. And I'm just, like, merrily plowing on ahead. And then he's like, okay, wait, what? Like, I don't know. I don't know what just happened there, but that was amazing. <laughs> like, I did not not know what you were going to do. <laughs> and then I tweeted about it and people were like, I have to buy the audiobook to find out how you did it. And now I'm like, I can't tell anybody now because this is like the reason some people are buying the audiobook. Oh, yeah. We'll keep a secret then. We'll keep a secret. <laughs> you have found that people will often like attempt to do that and a key smash is an expression of excitement or, or big energy uh, but people will sometimes attempt to do it find that it doesn't look key smashy enough even though it's what they did in life and so they will go back and retype it uh, yeah. and so yeah. like that's the instead of us finding the right read to do the right triangle we're like I didn't slap my hand against the keyboard properly I need to redo it and the thing that I love about it is like the whole point about key smash is that it's incoherent it's this quote-unquote random, you know, like mashing your hands against the keyboard, and yet people are like, yeah, I don't know, that randomness, it doesn't look like everyone else's randomness, so I'm going to change it. <laughs> you know, even when we think we're producing randomness, we're socially attuned to each other, and we're trying to produce like the quote-unquote right kind of randomness. So the ASDF thing is, that's a very like physical keyboard, laptop, desktop key smash. Yeah. Lately, key smash has been changing because people are now key smashing from their phones. Right. <laughs> and so when you key smash from your phone, you some people, I think, are still replicating SDF from their phone. They're just, like, trying to do that. I know the first couple times I key smashed from my phone, I was like, hmm, how can I make this look like a desktop? <laughs> <laughs> but I've been lately collecting a new key smash, mobile key smash corpus, if you will, <laughs> of how people are key smashing when it's clearly from a mobile device. And I haven't yet fully analyzed the results yet. Stay tuned. <laughs> but it looks really different because when you're tapping with two thumbs, you end up on, like, SK, SK, SK or something like that rather than starting with the A. Well, and also the sort of reverse element, too, is our modern systems often come with spell check or autocorrect. And it's very interesting to... I I just felt very seen by reading that people besides me are having to undo what spell check or autocorrect did in order to sound the way I want to sound in my internet text. I was like, oh, I'm glad it's not just me. Great. (laughs) Absolutely. And this is the kind of thing that I love about doing internet linguistics is, you know, I now have this really finely tuned hunch for when I start doing something or I start noticing something that I'm like, I bet this one isn't me, isn't just me. And I can do a survey to prove it (laughs) because everyone out here doing this thinks they're all alone. So I, I did a survey about people... Uh, lowercasing like names of brands or companies to show that they're not like a PR rep or a you know they don't take the co- brand or company too seriously. So I have a a lot of like copy editors and kind of formal language people as well following me on Twitter. And some of these more formal people were like, "Whoa, I had no idea people were doing this deliberately as a kind of anti-authoritarian slash just like you don't want to sound too corporate." You know, it's like saying PepsiCo TM 
every time rather than just like a lot of Pepsi. Right. <laughs> like, can you get me a Coca-Cola TM? This <laughs> no. is just not how people talk. Um, right. Like, I and... need to blow my nose. Can you hand me a Puffs with Vicks VapoRub copyright? <laughs> like, nobody does that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I need to go to sleep on my cast Casper mattress TM. <laughs> We're on a podcast. Yeah, I mean, I say that, sure, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, that's how they know you're in an ad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, that's not how people talk. And I think lowercasing brand names, even if you're going to talk about them, is one way of saying, okay, look, I'm, you know, I'm using this brand, but I'm not trying to, like, promote them or I'm not, I'm not a corporation. I'm, I'm still a real person here. And in many cases, you have to go to extra effort because my phone now recognizes brand names. Like, it will try to capitalize Coca-Cola or something. There's Mine this... does it with all the Apple products. I have an uh, Apple yeah, iPhone, and yeah. it always does iPhone right or FaceTime right. And I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, I, I have guess. Android, and it still capitalizes all the Apple products, like iPad, oh. and <laughs> all of this stuff. Well, and this and this might get to one very broad thing. I think I think the book spells out beautifully, which is that the way we write and talk to each other on the internet is much more expressive than it is lazy. And and this this minimalist typography uh, that you catalog in it is, is such a perfect example of it. Like we're, it's so interesting to know that many of us are doing extra manual labor to make the way we type minimalist. I, maybe, maybe we should also check in on exactly what that is for people don't know who don't know. What is minimalist typography? Minimalist typography is this, this thing we've been talking about uh, all along of not using capitals, using very little punctuation, maybe some, maybe a few periods, maybe some line breaks, maybe some commas, but not really a lot when it comes to punctuation, not a lot of capitalization, not a lot of like all of those extra things that you can put in to indicate certain things about your tone of voice. So capitals and exclamation marks and sparkles and all of these kinds of things and just kind of being very deadpan about it or wry. But within that, minimalism also comes a certain tone of voice. It's often used for comedic timing. You know, if you have a couple line breaks, you can really get, you can really nail the comedic timing there, or it's used to be kind of annoyed, but in a relatable sort of way, or have these, these kinds of feelings around this. But in many cases, first of all, minimalist typography arises as a particular style in the post-smartphone era. Before that, people are typing in lowercase, but that's just like the easiest default thing to do. And so other people don't assign a particular tone of voice to it. Both the people who are doing it and the people who aren't doing it are like, well, it's just easier. Right. And in the post-smartphone era, when it no longer becomes the easy default thing to do and people are choosing to type in a minimalist sort of way, choosing to override, you know, auto capitalization and auto punctuation and these kinds of things. Then it becomes this marker of tone of voice. And then people start saying, no, I'm doing this deliberately because I want to indicate this particular thing. Whether that's a callback to the earlier era of like, well, this was easy and lazy at the time. And so I still want to be seen with that sort of aesthetic, like buying pre-ripped jeans. Yeah. Or whether it's, <laughs> you know, we have a, there's a history of like <laughs> deliberately yes. adopting things that are counterculture, even when they're very mainstream and they're being sold at the Gap or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or whether people are saying, no, I'm going to go in and I'm going to do this because I want this to convey this particular tone of voice. or using some of the old school internet slang terms like GR and the number eight 
can be used very ironically, very sarcastically. It's not like anybody's default way of saying great, like it might have been in the 90s. Right. It gets brought in as like, you know, kind of the ironic choker necklace of <laughs> uh, internet <laughs> vocabulary. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm, I'm doing this. Or like the ironic, like, you know, ugly 70s uh, glasses frames. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm doing this, but only because I want you to know. <laughs> Yeah, that I have a heavy layer of irony going on here. And I felt so seen because I know I have used cyberspace as a word to like lightly yeah. or self-deprecatingly describe an internet thing I'm doing. Like I, I wrote a new piece and, and here's my new cyberspace thing, you know, and it's it's there's a, a very specific tone there. I don't actually think cyberspace is what we call it. <laughs> no, I, I used cyberspace like just a couple times very sparingly in the book because partly like you write a book about the internet and the word internet stops taking on any meaning to you because you, you hear it so, it many so times. often yeah <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. and there's a real problem with both the words internet and online which is internet begins with in and online begins with on and so if you uh. want to say something like in internet speech or on online discourse oh no <laughs> <laughs> it turns out really clunky you know a couple times i used cyberspace but i also felt like i had to put a disclaimer in the book that's like look the only times I'm using cyberspace are jocular. Like, I, I know I'm being sarcastic here because you never know. It was interesting reading books and articles about the internet from the 90s and the early 2000s oh. and trying to see, like, because they're historical documents now, but they weren't at the time. Yeah. Are they all hilarious? They're pretty hilarious. <laughs> it's really fun to read a book about internet culture that just, like, never mentions the word meme anywhere. <laughs> You're like, oh, <laughs> I guess this was not always a thing. The other day on Twitter, people were passing around a clip from, it was the Today Show in a year when email was still new. And so it's just the hosts talking <laughs> about what email is and whether people should sign up for it. It's uh, it's great. It's it's the funniest thing. I rewatched the movie <laughs> You've Got Mail. While I was working on the book, just as oh, research, wow. obviously. <laughs> what a movie for people who haven't seen You've Got Mail. I don't know. It's like it's a it's a romance, but like the characters meet each other in a chat room and they're like a yeah. AOL thing and they start exchanging emails and they start falling in love. In the meantime, they know each other in person and they hate each other and they don't know that who each other is because like on the Internet, people could be anybody and like. Nobody knows who anybody is on the internet, which is also a very 90s thing. <laughs> because these days, like, you know, I have, a, I have a professional Twitter account. It has my name on it. Like, I have met up with people who I also knew from their professional Twitter accounts and, like, stayed at their houses. And, like, right. it's not weird. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, it was like, stranger danger. Nobody is who they say they are. This person you think is actually 20 could be 80. You know. <laughs> but anyway, there's this moment in You've Got Mail where one of the characters turns to another character and she says to him, are you online? <laughs> you can hear the space in between those words, which first of all is amazing. Yeah. But secondly, what she means by this question, it's very, very clear from context, is like, have you used the internet ever? <laughs> like, and he's like, I think he's like, oh, well, I dialed in once, but like, I never really got into it or something like this. <laughs> this is just not a question you can ask people now. <laughs> Are you online? No spaces means like, are you physically in front of a computer right now? But even that is kind of an early 2000s question. It's not a question of this year because now we all have our phones. And like, if you're not asleep, like you probably have access to a device or you've you've deliberately unplugged and you've gone on a tech retreat and you've taken a hiatus. Yeah, sabbatical. Uh, yeah. Sabbatical. So this is just like not a kind of question you can ask. And this like, yeah, I don't know the Internet. Maybe it's just not for me. 
is also just a, what an amazing response, right? <laughs> Who says that now? Right, right. <laughs> said, like maybe your grandparents, but like even then, a lot of grandparents are on Facebook now. Many thanks to our friends at Squarespace for making this episode of the podcast possible because they are very online with a capital V and a capital O. Ah, that's how it hooked into the episode. Don't you get it? You probably do. Great. Well, I'm very online, capital V, capital O, and I think Squarespace is a great way to get you on there with your own personal site. Express who you are, share your products or your writing or your photography or, or dancing, maybe embed a video. They have a way to do that. They also have beautiful templates created by world-class designers, the ability to customize just about anything in there with a few clicks. They have an e-commerce functionality for your sales. They have analytics for your hits on the site in general. Also, everything's optimized for mobile right out of the box. And if anything's not feeling optimal about your site, they have 24-7 award-winning customer support to help you get there. So head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash cracked. Offer code cracked. One thing to repeat from the top of the show, it's it's a big surprise out of nowhere for you. The Cracked Podcast is headed to the London Podcast Festival. I will be there live with amazing guests on Sunday, September 8th at King's Place in London, England, United Kingdom. Information on that is linked in the food notes. And I will see you folks right bloody soon. That's a thing you say, right? I hope so. One of my favorite things that you, that you've you've codified and sort of broken out structure for is generations of internet people, and there are a couple of them, and and it's it's a way we can kind of sort all of ourselves in terms of when we got on the internet, what we used it for, and and maybe most of all how we view it as a thing in our lives. Yeah, it's so interesting. I've gotten so many early readers messaging me about that chapter, saying, "Oh my god, I feel so seen." Yeah, like I do have a complicated folder filing. System for my email <laughs> or you know i do do something like this so that's a question for you what was your first internet social experience i think i strongly go into the category we'll explain of of full internet people but I, but i think i was a little bit toward the end of it maybe because i remember using aol instant messenger and that was how we mm -hmm. talked to each other on the internet for the first time but also being antsy to be able to use facebook and then once they opened it up to you don't need a college email address it was like, oh, finally, we can do this next thing now. I distinctly remember like us talking to girls on AIM and uh, people having <laughs> uh, people having away messages. And these were like these were like girls you knew in your class. Yes, it, yeah, it was always uh, an extension of uh, uh, the actual physical class world, and and also I feel very seen by the acknowledgement that rules and laws against kids being out at night drove us online more. Like, yes, of course it did. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but that, and that like was people, it. <laughs> people just wanted to hang out, and yeah. the internet was like the place where you could hang out. Yeah, like the mall closes, so now we need to do this. Like that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like if we if we could have hung out, you know, in the like back of the like sports field or something, or like you know going to sports games, it wasn't about like watching the game. It was about like hanging out with your friends. Yeah, exactly. Mine and the, and the same band, thing. But yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Or like going to you know whatever like various events. It was about like that hanging out in the hallways, hanging out in parks, hanging out in malls, hanging out in like you know, those kind of unstructured settings. Yeah. And the internet kind of transports that 
into, okay, well, here's another place you can hang out that is a little bit harder for your parents to maybe know about because you're like, I'm doing my homework, mom. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, we were told about, you know, stranger danger and like, don't tell anybody who you are online. But I was also like, look, the people who are online with me are people in my class. Like, I know who they are. It's really interesting to me to see because a lot of the internet discourse, especially in the early era, was dominated by the kinds of people who went online to talk to strangers rather than to talk to people they already knew. And so this slightly earlier, earlier generation, people who were going on like chat rooms and discussion forums and news groups and these kinds of places, they had handles too for their names. They didn't use their real names either. You know, they, they kept them very consistent from one platform to the other. And they're like, when you talk to people in that group, they're like, why, were, why are you changing your name all the time? And it's like, well, because people already know my offline identity. I can just change this thing because I want to showcase a different aspect of it. And maybe that's a good way to look at that kind of first group because it's it's in the book, it breaks out into three waves. Uh, and the first wave is old Internet people who is is the name of it. They were on relatively early and they used a lot of things like the Usenet forum. It was really interesting because I had, you know, multiple people reading early versions of the book and some of them would flag things like Snapchat and be like, you got to explain Snapchat like people don't necessarily know what Snapchat is. And one of my early readers flagged Usenet and was like, you need to explain what Usenet is because I have no idea what it is. And I was like, you're a grown up person with a job. Like, how do you not know what Usenet is? Because <laughs> <laughs> like, I wasn't on Usenet, but I, I was aware that it existed as a thing. Yeah, same. <laughs> Usenet was the user's network. It was like a proto Reddit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it it had was all how my different... friend Jeff pirated stuff and met people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It was this, you know, here's this this era of like you go online to meet people and you're going to keep the same handle because you're going to get this handle and you're an early adopter so you can actually register it everywhere and you can, you know, you can you can be this kind of performative identity in that sort of way, but in a way that kind of rejects the offline world because you're trying to find new friends and then this the the younger wave like this next kind of wave of mainstreamization you have your younger users that are just on the internet to connect with their existing friends because they don't have spaces to do that in real life and you have your older users that are coming on at the same time but they already have good offline social networks so they don't really get on the internet as a social place and i think that's many of the kind of parent generation that like oh yeah we have some funny email forwards but we also already have a social life and we don't need to we don't need to create one on the internet because we have more autonomy in our lives than the younger people do that's so amazing that that there's this first wave of uh, basically forum people who are all, all connecting in that very tech savvy kind of very on top of the yeah. medium way and then in and the late 90s early 2000s we have lots of people joining for these two different reasons uh, the the either my friends in real life I can't hang out with them so I'm going to use it or I'm an adult with a job and and I need it for email and and maybe some news and travel and stuff yeah, yeah, I need it for work. I'm going to I'm going to do this kind of stuff and I'm going to establish this. But they also have cultural practices. Like they have a very complicated, well-laid-out folder system for their email. And this is like the only <laughs> group that has like a really good folder system. Some of the older yeah. people have a really good folder system too, but like this group in particular, like they're on it for work and they damn they're going to work. Maybe that leads to then this this kind of third wave that's most recent where there's the names in the book are pre-internet people who have been alive this whole time, but just kind of avoided the internet until it became super ubiquitous in the 2010s. And so now they use it a bit. And then there's post-internet people who are often teenagers, but they basically came into an internet that already had all of these social platforms and YouTube and everything that we're used to. It was just fully fledged and put together. 
Yeah, exactly. And so you have this this group that's really defined by its relationship with email. And then this later wave is really defined by its lack of relationship with email. Because for a solid decade or more, everyone was on, who was on the internet was using email. And in fact, many people were using email and not the rest of the internet. Wow. So you had your like, you know, Microsoft Outlook type app. And that was the only internet connected app you used. You didn't use a browser like not everyone used a browser like Netscape or Safari or, you know, Internet Explorer, or even Chrome and Firefox didn't exist at that point. But, you know, like not everyone was actually going to websites. Some people were just doing the connection to get email and that's it. You and I probably kind of remember this era, but they, this younger group really does not remember this era. And it's like, yeah, an email is a thing you use to sign up for social networks with. Right. <laughs> you have an email address because you need it to sign up to Facebook or to Instagram or whatever. But the email is like the thing you use to sign up for things. And maybe email is something you use to communicate with like your university professors or tech support or these kinds of like official, more official channels or you sign up to a newsletter with it. But you don't necessarily have like friendships and relationships and personal emails that just like send messages to people to catch up with them. That's something that people did. That's something that I remember doing when I was a teenager. Like some, you know, sometimes in the summer vacation when I wasn't seeing my friend as much, we would just exchange like long emails with each other. Oh, yeah. Like, and funny chains with like a group of friends and everything. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Email all the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe this is the thing everyone says before the future happens and surprises them. But it feels like maybe there isn't a way for more waves to come. Right. Like especially these this last one, it's the young people who have everything that's there and the old people who have finally come around and does that kind of complete the internet generations have we done it well i think there are a few things about internet generations that are hard to replicate unless you get another new technology right oh, um, sure. like maybe there'll be ar generations who knows if ar actually manages to catch on which you know like maybe there'll be people who like are holdouts who never go into virtual reality maybe there'll be people who are like oh I've, I've just grown up with it it's totally normal for me or something like that right sure um, wow so the internet generations have kind of run their course but that doesn't mean you can't have another technologically influenced generation. You and I grew up in a post-telephone and post-television generation. Like, everyone just had a telephone and a television. You weren't like, are you going to get a telephone? Like, are you on the telephone exchange? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I, like, I'm, I'm not kidding. I was yeah. watching a TV series that was set in the 1950s and 60s, and one of the characters asked another character, like, are you on the telephone? In the same way that you might ask somebody, like, are you on Facebook? Are you on Instagram? Are you on Snapchat? Are you online? <laughs> and one of the characters is like, are you on the telephone? And she's like, oh, yeah, no, we don't have the telephone. It's like, oh, it's okay. We can write. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just like, they're new friends. They're trying to keep in touch in the same city. Like, which, which social network are you going to use? Like, oh, are you on, you know, are you on Snapchat? No, well, it's okay. We can Facebook. And I suppose there's also that process of like a lot of us losing landlines or it's not communicational, but a lot of us getting rid of cable TV. You know, like I, I guess there's also generations of this stuff falling away. The telephone starting up did kind of cannibalize the like social letter writing. And there's a, there's a lot of controversy around the telephone and the television and the radio starting up is that like, are people going to become less literate? Because you don't need to be literate to understand the radio. You don't need to be literate to call someone on the telephone. You know, here's like no one's reading anymore. Like that was the moral panic of the day, right? Like kids aren't going to read anymore because they can listen to the radio because they can call people on the phone. <laughs> Mark Twain has this amazing like diatribe against the telephone. He was also a very early telephone adopter. Oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> but he just finds it incredibly weird and disturbing 
to hear only half of a conversation. He's like, this is messed up. <laughs> oh, what, like hearing... Like, I'm not used... When you when say someone hearing else is half. On the phone. Right, like when, when someone else in the room is on the phone. Wow. <laughs> exactly. When you're overhearing someone else on the phone and you only hear half of their conversation, he's like, this is so weird, I don't like it. <laughs> Little did he know Bob Newhart would make that the funniest thing in the world. Uh, he had no idea. Right, like, this, and this became a complaint again when people started, like, answering cell phones in public. Like, now you have to overhear half of someone's conversation on the bus or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> And, and in terms of these panics, maybe maybe it's a good time to look at emoji as well as just the broader idea of whether anybody should be panicking about about Internet language and speech. But I had never understood emoji uh, the way you break it out and, until I, I read this book, mainly that emoji are not quite the same as uh, written or spoken language. They're they're in a additional component. The way that I like understanding emoji is through gesture, because yeah. If we think back about this, like, written versus spoken thing, one of the things that comes with speech is you have gestures and you have other types of visual, you know, facial expressions, other types of visual things you can bring to what you're saying. And in writing, you don't really have gestures. What you do have is drawings. In a technical sense, those drawings can be like, here's a graph, here's a chart, here's a diagram. But in an informal sense, those drawings can be okay, here's sometimes the literal representation of a gesture. You can send someone a thumbs up or the middle finger or any of these, you know, rolling eyes emoji, like the the thinking face hand, which I love. <laughs> you know, the, like the face with the kind of L-shaped hand oh, on the chin. Yeah, yeah, oh, very, very quizzical, yeah. It's so good because it, it does so much. Um, and <laughs> gestures, we don't think about gestures very often. You know, you make them all the time. You may be gesturing right now. I'm gesturing. You can't see me. Yeah, I am too. Wow. Yeah. I just well, did a it's, wow it's uh, actually, with my hands. It's actually really hard to talk without gesturing. You know, people gesture on the phone. People who've been blind since birth gesture, even when they're talking to other people who they know are also really? blind. Wow. You know, so there's something about gesture that's really good for coming up with ideas and like getting them out in a, like helping you think. If you encourage people to gesture while solving like math problems, they'll do a bit better. If you tie people down for science and <laughs> tell them to tell a story. <laughs> so you say, yeah, we're actually taking like electrophysiological measurements from your skin. So we have to tie you down to like, you know, be able to take these measurements while you're telling a story. But actually you're just preventing them from gesturing. <laughs> and say like, please narrate back what happened in this like Tom and Jerry cartoon. And, you know, so that like the cat runs up you know, all of this stuff happens, but you can't say like runs up and runs down and people really want to gesture and they actually produce more ums and ahs and pauses and stuff like this when you prevent them from gesturing than if you let them gesture. That's amazing. There's a whole field of gesture studies, which I learned about as I was writing this book, which <laughs> I was kind of like, how have I been doing linguistics for so long and not learned about gesture studies, but better late than never. I think it's really interesting. It's also, it's just delightful that you have a great podcast called Lingthusiasm and, and your co-host Lauren Gaughan often studies gesture, as I understand it. And so you, yeah. you were trying to figure this out and then she just cracked it. She said, oh, a lot of these are like emblem gestures and then there, there are these other gestures and there you go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So my co-host on the podcast, you know, and she was just kind of 
generally being supportive when I was writing this book because she's also a good friend. And she's like, yeah, here's here's a here's a gesture thing you might not have occurred to me. And I was like, excuse me, <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> Please tell me more. She's like, well, do you want my like entire syllabus from my gesture course? And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> uh, and so we've actually done a Lingthusiasm episode all about gesture. We did the, our very first video episode of our podcast so that yeah. people can see the gestures. Because <laughs> after this, I was like, gesture is amazing. Why aren't we talking about it on the podcast? And she's like, we have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Turns out there's this big distinction in the gesture literature between nameable gestures and gestures that don't have conventional names. If you were asked to make a list of, of gestures, you're going to list the ones that have names in English. So you're winking and your thumbs up and rolling eyes and middle finger and all of these kinds of gestures that that you can make that have conventional names in English. And if you're a speaker of English, you know what a thumbs up means. Even when it's a word, it's going to be an entry in English dictionaries and so on because it's a word for a thing that English speakers produce. Yeah. But there's also a whole set of other gestures. So if I was if if I was to ask you to describe like how you got here today, be like, well, I left my house and then I went down this street and then I went up here and then I got on the, you know, subway or whatever. And you, you're going to gesture to describe that. But the gestures that you use are not going to have conventional names pretty much. Like you're, I don't know, probably going to use maybe some sort of open hand shape, maybe like a pointing finger, maybe two fingers pointing. Like you could do maybe some sort of like approximate grip thing like they just really don't have conventional names in the same way that like a thumbs up is a thumbs up and you know what a thumbs up look looks like i actually i i have one specific to getting to this studio because at one point i was taking an all los angeles surface streets route to get here and so like I, somebody would ask me oh how how was the drive in and i would i would describe it but i would do a crazy windy thing with my hand you know to, <laughs> to express be like it. it was terrible i was yeah. assuming you might be in new york so i was like maybe you took the subway but if you're in la yeah the traffic was bad i yeah. was <laughs> you know doing this windy thing <laughs> yeah and there's all these pantomimes that don't make any sense uh, verbal yeah. <laughs> well, it's slightly different from the technical category of pantomime because technically speaking oh. in the literature, a pantomime doesn't come with words. Oh, I see. So that's your like charades game or like you're in a crowded bar and you want to gesture like you, me, get let's get out of here. That's going to be a that's going to be a pantomime. Whereas oh. this is what the literature calls co-speech gesture, which kind of ah, yes. does what it says in the tin. <laughs> 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 it's the ones that kind of come along for the ride when you're when you're making words. And they often go in the rhythm of the words you're saying. If you stutter, your gesture stutters with you. If you pause, your gesture pauses with you. And these ones don't have distinct names and they have less constraints about form. They're not as they're not as strict in how you produce them. So if you wanted to, like you said, okay, I did a wiggle kind of wiggle gesture to like go through twist and turny traffic. I yeah. can make a wiggle gesture as well, but I might be doing it with just one index finger pointing. You might have done it with the whole hand or vice versa. And that's like, doesn't really matter, right? It's the same, communicates the same kind of thing. Yeah, sure. But with the other types of gestures that have names, they're really rigid for how you produce them. So for example, if you want to flip someone off, you make the middle finger gesture. You can't turn the middle finger so it's facing the other direction and be like, yeah, I'm still flipping you off. <laughs> people are like what the hell man right. why are you flipping me off backwards like that's not how you do it you look like a fool 
Right. Instead of being mad, they're like, do you need help? Like, you don't seem to understand like, things. Like, you don't seem to understand this very basic thing about English gestures. And yet, like, if I do, like, a you know, pointing with my index finger and I'm like, yeah, here's the, like, wiggle, gest- wiggle, you know, here's how traffic was. I could do that with, a you know, my finger facing a bunch of different directions, my hand facing in a bunch of different directions. And you're like, yeah, that's fine. I don't care. Any of those is fine. <laughs> um, or another one that's really good is, you know, like the peace sign, right? Sure. Yeah. You know, two fingers pointing up, peace. So normally in North America, we do this with the palm facing out towards the person you're talking to. Yeah. Uh, but you could do it like backwards in North America. And it's like, yeah, it's still a peace sign, whatever. But in the UK and Australia and like much of the rest of the Commonwealth, there's a really big semantic difference between the peace sign with your palm facing out, which still means peace, and the peace sign facing backwards with your palm facing towards you. Uh, right. Because that's like equivalent to the middle finger gesture. That's like F off up yours. <laughs> I actually I remember being a very young American who wanted to be a soccer fan and being so confused about all the peace signs in the stands when I got to see English games. I was really <laughs> confused. But they were just being like, oh, bro, you know, they were doing their thing. Uh, it's all different. Like, oh, it's so peaceful. We love we love soccer. <laughs> And, and with those gestures and with how they relate to emoji, it's just it's so exciting to me that there's such a rich array of things emoji are. And also they're not that thing that people panic about or people make making fun of the youth jokes about where they're like, oh, instead of using words in a sentence, they'll use emoji like a bunch of a bunch oh, of little children. God. But but actually, they're not words. They are gestures. And we have these emblem gestures, these co-speech gestures, all these different ways they indicate in text. It's amazing. Yeah. And like this this rebus use of emoji, which is kind of a, a like an older person thing. I don't know if you ever did rebuses as a kid, but they were like, you have to figure out it says like to be or not to be. But it has like a bumblebee and then like oh. an, an oar that you paddle with and like yeah. a knotted rope. And you have to figure out like, oh, that must mean to be or not to be because it's like it's a puzzle. Like it's in the crossword section. Yeah, that rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Rebus is, I, I think as far as I can tell, like it, people who see emoji and assume they're being used as Rebuses are just like, they're just trying to project like, I've seen some little images beside text before. I guess this must be what other people are using the little images for. You want to do rebuses, that's fine. But I'm also pro data, right? So like, that's not what the data says. That's how people are using emoji. If that was how people would be using emoji, it'd be very interesting. But it's not what the data says. And like, the types of people that you find using rebuses, so Cher uses them sometimes. Like sometimes she will write like a bumblebee for B. Good for her. I don't really think of Cher uh, as a representative of what the youth are going to be doing in another 20 years. Oh, or, or of what anyone's doing at all. She's so specific. If you had to be like, well, Cher's doing it, that must mean it's cool with the youths. I just don't think that's an accurate statement. <laughs> like, and even Cher only does that sometimes. And a lot of times she's doing what's the more typical emoji use, which is this, you know, adding on a layer of illustration or an extra layer of meaning to what you're saying. Like she has happy faces and, you know, hearts and rainbows and stuff like this to be like, yeah, this is the kind of person that I am. This is this is what I mean when I'm saying this. One of the many reasons I'm excited to talk to you is, is you've been on the forefront of emoji and uh, you've been been studying them and speaking on them since uh, 2014, I think it is. And there's a story in the yeah. book where you were going to do a presentation about emoji 
you and and collaborators thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we spoke some of it in emoji instead of of text or or words, and then just found it was impossible because that's not how they work. <laughs> exactly, and like to be fair, this was the other people's idea, not to uh, make yeah, them yeah. to dry, but like I knew this was going to be impossible. Oh, I shouldn't put that on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was I was more diplomatic in the book, but like it's a podcast; they're not going to listen to this podcast. They were like, yeah, we could do it all in emoji, and I was like, okay. How would that work exactly? And they were like, wait, we're not going to do this all in emoji. And I was like, okay, good. Glad. I'm glad we've got that settled. Right. You're like, how would we Just do like, that? And they're like, quizzical face, quizzical face, quizzical face, quizzical face. Like. <laughs> Pretty much, right? And I'm not saying you couldn't do a talk of some sort entirely in emoji, but it would just be a very different talk. So weird. Like, that would yeah. be an art project. That would be like doing your talk in interpretive dance. Like, you can. I'm sure someone has. Is it really as informative as just fucking talking? <laughs> Sorry, do we swear on this podcast? Oh, yeah, go for it. Yeah, it's fine. Okay, yeah. great. <laughs> 100 emoji to that. You know, well, and that's the thing is emoji are good at this kind of like emotional reaction things of like, yes, this is a good idea. This is a bad idea. They're really bad at conveying what linguists call like propositional content. Those are statements that can be true or false. Okay. <laughs> if you want to say something like, you know, and the challenge that I issued to people on the internet actually was try to say emoji our language to me, but in emoji. Yeah, wow. So first of all, what is the emoji for emoji? That's such a rabbit hole. Wow. I don't, uh, <laughs> like a, that's, that's very galaxy brain, right? Like, yeah. oh no. <laughs> I'll try to do like a screenshot of the keyboard or something. I don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that, that's a screenshot, man. You got to use actual emoji. <laughs> ah, I'm cheating. It's true. Uh. <laughs> Some people would use like the smiley face. I'm like, well, how do you know that doesn't mean smiley face? Like, how do you how do you create that kind of generalization? Like a language, languages have names for themselves. You know, even if you're yeah. a language that's spoken on like a remote island that like you've never been in contact with any other language, you don't realize any other language exists. You have names for like talking or speaking or like the way we talk. And if you encounter another group of people, you'll you'll make that the name of your language. Like, oh, the name for our language is like the right way of talking. <laughs> that's us. <laughs> <laughs> Like, emoji don't even have a name for themselves. And if you want to yeah. say, like, the word language in emoji, some people used, like, the ABC emoji. In my opinion, that's fucking cheating, right? You can't use an emoji that has alphabet on it to be like, oh, yeah, we don't need the alphabet, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the alphabet is so obsolete, I'm going to use this emoji that has the alphabet on it. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> and again, something like is, you end up using, like, an equal sign or, like, arrows, but, like, are those really like like in the really canonical emoji set? Or now we're we doing math. I think there are even symbol type things for math that are sort of emoji, right? Like it's, it's yeah. There's there's <laughs> there are like math symbols that have been that are in like emoji style font. But right. That's not really what people think of when they're like, oh, we're going to be communicating in emoji. Everyone's going to be talking in emoji in fifty years, because like that's everyone's going to be talking in math in fifty years, and we've had access to math for a long time, and somehow like everyone talking in math has just not happened. Yeah, even the board you know, use words. Yeah, right. <laughs> so like even this is a three word sentence. Like surely if, if it can do anything, it can do this. So I got people on Twitter to, to send me their suggestions for this because, you know, you issue a challenge. You say this can't be done. Of course, everyone wants to prove you wrong. And I got a bunch of their examples. And then uh, a year later, when everybody had forgotten about this thing, I took them with me to a talk and I put them up on a slide. And I said to the audience, you know, 100 people or whatever, like, hey, can anybody tell me what these what these mean? And people submitted, suggested all sorts of things. None of them suggested emoji or language. 
eventually when I provided enough context and hints, people were like, oh, well, maybe this is what they're, what they're trying to assert. Um, people suggested a bunch of things. Whereas if you're going to translate like emoji our language into like French or Japanese or ASL or like literally any language, you can just translate it. And then people who understand that language know what you've said. And you don't have this like guessing game. It's not like playing charades. Like, I mean, Whereas even, even Google it, Translate can do it. A robot can handle yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Google Translate can do it. Even if Google Translate does it kind of badly, it still is going to do it better <laughs> than a human does. Yeah. Even if you're really quote unquote fluent in emoji, it's still going to do a better job. Like the robot's going to do a better job if it can deal with an actual language. In terms of looking at the future, uh, I think it's good news for people like me who like emoji that uh, you pick out a it's a prediction but it's that the gestural indicative function of emoji is going to last like we might move on from this particular technology where there's a unicode encoded picture to, that goes with a set of numbers and then that's text uh but we'll probably keep that ability now that we have it that's so cool yeah exactly and it's you know, because before emoji, we had emoticons, which, you know, weren't as extensive and you couldn't do as many things with this. And there isn't a thinking face emoticon. So emoji are super useful because you can literally just do more faces when you actually have like multiple colors and like graphics beyond just like what you can randomly make punctuation characters combine into, because that's always been a fairly limited palette. <laughs> <laughs> right. Emoticons are cool, but like there are only so many things you can make out of them, even if one of those things is like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> from my from my teenage years, I believe it's regular faces, Abraham Lincoln and a very large penis. Those are the things you can make. That's that's it. <laughs> and a rose. You got to remember the rose. Like, yeah, this sort of like how what are emoji and emoticons contributing to our emotional expression? What are they letting us do? is, I think, a really interesting question. Because, like, yeah, sometimes people play the game where you, you know, try to describe a movie in emoji or you try to draw Abraham Lincoln <laughs> as an emoticon. But that's more like playing charades. Like, it's fun as a yeah. guessing game. You, you might play charades sometimes. You don't talk like you're doing charades all the time. I feel like we've pretty explicitly expressed the idea that internet language is, is positive and valid and, and an exciting thing. What can a listener do next time someone comes along and tries to be a, a language cop and says like, oh, no, that doesn't count. That's not really a thing. What are some like things they can express to them to, to get on with their day? I mean, lately what I do is I just quote tweet people who are harshing on internet language on Twitter. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, I've literally written a book about why you're wrong. <laughs> hey, Daily Mail, I have literally written a book about why texting is not destroying children's language. Like here, here's a whole book. You like <laughs> offline authorities? You want one? Here's an offline authority for you. And, but these days, a lot of times when somebody makes a tweet like that, I have like somebody else who I don't even necessarily know, like tagging me in the replies being like, Gretchen, Gretchen McCulloch has written a book about this. <laughs> <laughs> you should uh, you should check it out. Uh, it explains why you're wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's very interesting to me because I knew that some of the people who are reading the book would be people like you who are like, this is me. This explains everything I've been doing. Like, yeah. oh, my God, I can't believe that there's actually words for this. And some people reading this would be people who were like, remember the kids these days. And they want they think they want a book that like validates their suspicions or validates their feelings of like something's wrong in the world. But to my mind, it's just it's so much better. It's so much more fun to exist in a world where you can be curious about how people use language and be excited about how people use language. And like, you don't have to be angry. There's no, you know, there are plenty of things to be angry about in the world. And language change is not one of them. Nothing bad's going to happen if you just let that go. You can live a happier life and like the world will be fine if language keeps changing. Like, it's not like being mad that there's like 
injustice or like people are being treated badly. Like those are real things to be angry about. Keep being angry about those. Like right. you should be good to people. <laughs> the language is just not one of those things. And in many cases, disliking a particular language is more about your negative feelings associated with the people that use that language. Like, oh, I don't like young people. And so I'm going to project all these bad things about like the language that young people use. Then it is about actually something bad happening. Because like, of course, language has changed. Like language was always going to change. The question that interests me is which of those changes are attributable to the internet right now and which of those changes were just going to happen regardless because we don't talk like Shakespeare did. We don't talk like they wrote in Beowulf. Everything about language just just continues gradually changing from generation to generation. Are there any particular places we should be looking or watching out for that are kind of driving the the absolute newest stuff? The the book is is subtly through it, kind of a history of where it's come from. But uh, but where where's the latest newest stuff uh, popping up? One thing I think is really interesting is how our input tools change what language can be. So we talked about keyboards a lot, but obviously we're doing stuff that's language input that's beyond keyboards now. So yeah. you know, one thing that's that I'm keeping an eye on is you know we all have cameras in our pockets now, obviously. And you can take a, take a picture, you can annotate that picture, you can put, like, take a video, you can make stuff move along the video, you know, like, make things follow, like, snippets of text follow, you know, moving items in the, in the video. You can annotate particular things on a, on a picture or on a video in a way that's gotten a lot easier in the past few years. So sure. what happens when you're creating genres that are kind of more mixed with, between writing and, and visuals, in the sense of pictures, because, you know, I talked about emoji, I talked about GIFs, but user-generated pictures, you know, I wish, I hope someone's doing an analysis of, like, the story genre right now, whether that was Snapchat stories or Instagram stories, like, what what types of features do people use in that genre? What's what's going on there? It's hard to analyze because they disappear after 24 hours. Yeah, wow. But, like, I hope someone's writing an MA thesis about this right now. That's a whole amazing category. I, I hope someone is. Well, and uh, and... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I hope someone's analyzing, like, how people use something that's been I've been watching right now is how people use like paper signs in TikTok. Oh wow! They use these paper signs in TikTok all the time, and it's this like very offline online thing where yeah. people will put up a like take a piece of paper and they'll write like I see a lot of like high school students doing this for presumably like history class memes. They'll be like you know I'm Churchill and this is and this is me in World War II. And so they'll write like Churchill on a piece of paper and be like, this is me and I'm pretending to be Churchill for this like couple seconds of the snippet of the song. And then somebody else will be like, oh, I'm this person. And then they'll, they'll cut to themselves with a sign being like, oh, I'm this person instead. And like, here's this, I like, I'm Churchill. I'm Churchill's advisor. I'm telling him like, don't do the, like, don't make the V for victory sign backwards. No, but I want to do it. <laughs> and you can like, you can watch them kind of cut back and forth between that. So, yeah, I don't know. I hope someone's I hope someone's analyzing stories. I hope someone's analyzing TikTok right now. I'll be interested to see what comes out in the next few years. Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Gretchen McCulloch for helping me feel seen. I grew up with the Internet. I continue to grow with the Internet and somebody out there gets it. I hope you got to feel that way, too. Or I hope you got to feel like you discovered a whole new world or in many cases, both things. You know, I don't know if everybody knows about Usenet and TikTok. Those are two corners of the Internet that don't always overlap. And here they are joining together in one big uh, just like pageant of language. And in our food notes, you will, of course, find Gretchen's book. One more time, that title is Because Internet Understanding the New Rules of Language. It's out July 23rd. Pre-order now. 
You'll also find her podcast, Lingthusiasm, including a couple episodes that we mentioned. She and her co-host, Lauren Gone are great and just get into all kinds of different components of how language has worked now and throughout history and all over the world. It's great. You will also find a little bit of historical context uh, about the the various things that we talked about. We brought up the cuneiform that the Sumerians use. I don't even know if I pronounced that right. Taught by text. Oh, well, plowing ahead. As well as many of the other people and key figures in the development of the English language and all languages. There's just a lot of history in terms of how we speak that is straight up history as well as linguistics. Beyond that, and beyond the wonderful time I had with this, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by Jordan Duffy and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. And please do leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen to shows. That helps people find it. One of the very internet, very online things is that algorithms matter a whole lot. So if you if you feel the impulse to to help us out and share the show with people, you can reach out to specific people, you know, or you can leave a positive review and it just bubbles up for the entire world. Right. Isn't that magical? Yes. Use the robots to your advantage. So that's what you do if you love the show. If you hated this show on the flip side, let me know about it on social media. That's right. Social media, a space where Gretchen is such a great follow, especially on Twitter. She is at Gretchen AMCC, uh, which I believe is her middle initial and the start of her last name. And uh, there's just all kinds of things you can pick up about linguistics there. We're going to do a footnote to a thread she did, which is about the specific ways that the English language affects programming languages, like the languages that that software has been written in, and how certain other language groups that function differently, such as Finnish or Turkish, or I believe Swahili was in there, those would mean a completely different situation in terms of what your life would be like as a programmer, or a person creating passwords, or, or just all kinds of other things. There's so much depth to this stuff, and I feel like I am I am on a roller coaster of picking it up. It is so fun. My own Twitter account, uh, where I'm on that roller coaster, is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitztagram, and I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. That's got my show dates, my fun email newsletter of free internet stuff tips, and so much more. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.